For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. Drop the moss balls. You'll never take me alive, coppers! <laughs> no, Johnny, don't do it! And by drop, I mean destroy. Destroy the moss balls. Invasive zebra mussels have been found in 21 states, not in the water wells of boats, but in pet stores. The invasive mussel has, like a truly successful parasite, hidden inside moss balls, which are commonly used in aquariums and distributed throughout pet stores. Hell of a strategy. Zebra mussels, a highly adaptive invasive mollusk, were first discovered in the Great Lakes in 1988. Since then, state and federal agencies, including the USGS, have spent millions of dollars trying to mitigate their spread. Zebra mussels are fingernail-sized mollusks that are native to Eurasia. They filter out algae that native species need for food, and they attach to and incapacitate native mussels. As a reminder, our native freshwater mussels are, for the most part, threatened or endangered. In addition, these mussels attach to boats, props, power plants, ropes, generally make a mess of things, which all cost a pretty penny to remove. It is interesting to note that the presence of zebra mussels really do clean the water up. But again, what may look good to us isn't necessarily good for fish species. That change in the habitat allows more light to penetrate, it warms the water faster, and that tiny little life, that little zooplankton they filter out, is what all of our fish, including all of our game fish, need to eat when they're at their juvenile stage. So, if you are in possession of these zebra balls, or, as the kids are saying, holding... Are you a knock? 
I'm sorry? Are you a narc? Ah, I see, I see. Okay, a, a narc. Don't just throw them away. Boil them or freeze them solid for 12 hours. Do not flush them down the toilet or throw them outside. Wrap them in plastic and place them in a landfill-bound dumpster. This week, we've got dog poop, ancient bacteria, wildlife crime, access issues, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is powered by steel power equipment. Steel, world's most powerful chainsaws. One question I get a lot of is, how long do the lithium-ion batteries in the electric saws last? Which are very expensive, by the way. Currently, there are a lot of batteries in the field with more than 10 years of use. As long as you are not being a knucklehead and you treat these batteries like they should be treated, which means running them from a full charge to zero before charging and keeping them stored in an area where they cannot freeze, the steel lithium-ion batteries will go 1,000 charging cycles before the capacity drops to about 80%. All right, you can use it a thousand times if you follow those rules before you get a reduced charge out of your battery. That is a heck of a lot of cutting, which is why this stuff's expensive. All of that copper in those batteries comes out of the ground, and it's a messy business. So we need those batteries to last, offset the cost of our natural resources. You dig it? Anyway, real, real big news. Because, you know, a lot of really good people work on this stuff as a passion project. Another season, season two to be specific, of Cal's Week in Review in the field is coming to you via both the Meat Eater YouTube channel and the Meat Eater website. Very interested to see and hear what everyone thinks. We tackle land access in the state of Maine while hunting some woodcock and grouse. Uh, No, Snort will not be with me on this episode. But. She's gonna get with me in the future, and maybe we will get back to Maine where we'll bust some brush and stumble through logging slash. We head down to Louisiana, join my good buddy Jerome Brewer, I should say Captain Jerome Brewer, for a little triple tail and nutria action out on the coast of Louisiana. We were supposed to be there a little longer, but the winds blew me all the way to Araby, which is just outside of New Orleans, where I met up with Jared Serenye and got belly deep in the bayou for hogs and gallinule. Got an eye-level perspective on saltwater intrusion and land loss. And the very first episode to air on Tuesday, the 16th of March, we'll be working with Idaho Fish and Game during their grizzly trapping season as they continue on a capture and collar study that was spearheaded, really, by the Craigheads in 1959. Have you ever uh, hugged a grizzly bear? Well, these folks do every year. And it is amazing to see. Get goosebumps just talking about it. Swear to God. Then I went down to the South Fork of the Snake to meet up with an old buddy of mine, George White, of Worldcast Outfitters, to catch rainbow trout and talk fisheries with Brett High, the Upper Snake Region Fisheries Manager, and do some electroshocking and netting. I'll tell you right now, Brett's net skills are slightly better than mine. Lots to learn. Lots of cool stuff to see. Please do write in and let me know what you think. And hopefully, if you like it, where we should go next, check stuff out. I'm always learning. You should be too. Moving on to the mortality desk. 
In 2010, Japanese scientists sailed to the most remote spot in the ocean, the center of a place called the South Pacific Gear, and took soil borings from the ocean floor. You may have heard of the South Pacific Gear as the location of the world's biggest garbage patch. We don't cover this particular place a whole lot here on the Week in Review, because there are plenty of depressing things to talk about that don't involve a giant patch of garbage. Just to clear this up, maybe be a little more specific, if you fancy yourself a scavenger, maybe you've dug through a few uh, garbage piles, I have, well, this spot isn't going to be your spot. You're not going to find something like old Cousin Eddie does and refurbish it. How do you like yours, Clark? Oh, medium rare, a little pink inside. No, you're fine. Light or dark? Oh, uh, either way, it doesn't matter. The South Pacific garbage patch is roughly the size of Texas, but the garbage is for the most part smaller than grains of rice. This is where plastic and microfibers end up, slowly getting ground into smaller and smaller bits. But that's not what we're talking about. This is a podcast about life, and there ain't no life there. The currents swirling between Australia and South America keep nutrients out of this area. The center of the South Pacific garbage patch is so remote that at certain times the closest human beings are the astronauts passing overhead in the International Space Station. And because this is a spot so far from any shore, there's almost no possibility of any terrestrial plant or animal matter reaching it. So, even though it's the ocean, this is a place just as devoid of life as the center of the Sahara. Or, I should say, almost devoid of life. When the Japanese scientists got back to the lab and analyzed their sample of dirt, which, by the way, I gotta tell you, the technical term for the dirt pulled from the sea floor is, and listen up, this may be the only thing you learn today, nanofossil ooze. Pretty awesome, right? What do you work with, mom and dad? If it's not nanofossil ooze, take a back seat. Anyway, in the nanofossil ooze, they discovered signs of ancient bacteria from 100 million years ago. Now, that does sound surprising, but I'm going to tell you right now that it isn't that surprising. Over the eons and eons of the Earth's history, conditions change so much that fossilized bacteria is kind of distributed more or less everywhere. What is quite surprising, though, to me anyway, is the little guys were still alive. That's right. After 100 million years of staying dormant, they woke right up when fed nutrients in a Petri dish, and within about five days, they had doubled in number. Now, this isn't how aliens started, so calm down. And let's pause here to acknowledge how momentous this is. 100 million years ago, North America was still in such close geographic proximity with Europe that a particularly ambitious paddler could have traveled from Brazil to Western Africa in a canoe. However, as you know, people were not around yet. In fact, roaming around on land were triceratops and pterosaurs were flying the sky. Our bacterial friends hung out for about 44 million years, They survived the impact of a meteor 15 kilometers wide that wiped out three quarters of the living things on Earth. Seemingly unfazed, they continued to persist for another 66 million years until they got a chance to snack on some carbon and nitrogen in a lab in Yokohama. 
Kind of a typical story if you think about it. Boy meets dinosaur, boy meets rock, boy sulks on the bottom of the ocean. Taylor's old as time. You might think of these bacteria as microbial cockroaches, surviving on happily as epochs and apocalypses go by. If they were going strong for 100 million years, what's to prevent them from going for 100 million more? And 100 million more after that? If this ain't mortality, I'm not sure what is. If you have ever come back from a long trip and maybe forgot about a bag of laundry for a few days, the smell from that bacteria is something fierce. I mean, just so you know, the bacteria is what makes your clothes smell. It's the bacteria that are, uh, well, they're reproducing in there. It's a love fest of bacteria, and that's what the smell is. It's the smell of bacterial love, is what I'm saying. I smell sex and can be And it's because of this thought that I wonder why the authors of this study neglected to discuss the aroma of 100 million year old bacteria as it grew in the lab. Is it more or less potent than what we cook up today? Yes, you ate dinosaur skin cells and survived a life-ending cosmic event. But people have been doubling and doubling bacteria-like in size for a long time while you were just sitting it out on the seafloor in the middle of nowhere. Think about it. Who's tougher? Moving on to the ever-popular wildlife crime desk. Three men cited for poaching, a 34-point buck, Alex Laffey, Dion Laffey, and Eugene Heisler. One of these things is not like the other one. All from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, have been charged with multiple wildlife violations. What was unique about this one is the crew posted their poaching success on social media and even thanked the landowner for the access. But they shot the buck before legal shooting light on a property they did not have permission on. Not great, Bob! Sticking with Wisconsin, Lincoln County Sheriff's deputies issued three citations after breaking up a fight over ice fishing spots which is the most ice fishing action you'll ever see. A Royal Oak, Michigan man. Special shout out to my good friend Ryan Thompson, who was quite unfortunately my roommate the last time we worked together in Royal Oak, Michigan. I say unfortunate because let's just say the motto on the way into town should say, Welcome to Royal Oak, Michigan. Don't eat the chili. Where would a comedy show be without a few fart jokes? Anyway, a Royal Oak, Michigan man has been linked to threats of violence against Metro Park officers in regards to a deer cull in Kensington Metro Park. A cull is a term for an organized killing of animals in such a way that hunt would not be fitting, as in this is not a chance exercise. The deer cull is apparently nothing new, and this year the herd was scheduled to be reduced by 50 animals. Until a 71-year-old man called in threatening to shoot Metro Park's officers. Because that makes sense somehow. The Detroit Free Press got this quote from Huron Clinton Metro Park's police chief, Michael Reese. Quote, I've been police chief here for five years and never experienced direct threats towards officers as a result of the deer management program. We've gotten letters in the mail from individuals not agreeing, and they have never taken it to this extent. Which leads me to believe that they must not have social media in this part of Michigan. 
seriously. One phone call and some letters that, quote, disagree? A little thin-skinned in that part of Michigan, I think. Metro Parks uses third-party biologists to manage the deer population. The biologists determined that the herd was stressed due to poor nutrition and recommended that some be shot. Which means, lots of good food for local shelters. A lot of people think that getting life insurance means you're insuring yourself for yourself, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's insuring yourself for your family. So if something happens to me and I'm not around anymore, I can have more peace of mind that my family can have some financial support. And that's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. More than once in my life, my journey, people have described me as an independent person. And that's how I want to stay even when I'm dead. That's how I want to be remembered. That's why I have life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without on X. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Next up, how's this for the start of a story? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> The deputy could smell fish as he approached the van. Quick rule of thumb, kids. Don't approach strange vans no matter what they smell like. Officers discovered 100 undersized rung lobster tails, 17 undersized stone crab claws, 4 undersized whole lobsters, and 1 undersized mutton snapper in the vehicle. The men driving the van said they operated a small seafood restaurant. Get it? All the, uh, all the fish were, uh, they were undersized. Small restaurant. What do you expect, folks? 
Wildlife crime isn't a laughing matter. Anyway, the lobster tails alone are potential felonies for the two men. Moving on to the public lands and waters desk. You may recall the story of Stony Lake that sits just off Stony Lake Road in beautiful British Columbia. The Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club had testified in Supreme Court as to the fact that the water is accessible by public road, maintained by public funds, so the water is public. And it was this opinion that was upheld by the court. Well, that ruling was just overturned, and Stony Lake is now back in private hands. Basically what happened is, a new court found that the water is just a bit too far from the road, meaning that the water is not within the public right-of-way, meaning that the water is private. The owner of the ranch, one Stan Kroenke, the American businessman, famous for owning a bunch of professional sports teams, said, The public can still stand on the road and smell the lake, even look at it, and he won't charge them to do so. Also, Santa isn't real. (laughs) Just kidding. Stan Kroenke is an American businessman. In other British Columbia news, a bunch of folks have written in asking my opinion or to weigh in on trophy. Basically, the word trophy and how it is weaponized against hunters, specifically in British Columbia, but, you know, it happens down here in the lower 48 and elsewhere, I'm sure. Now, there's kind of a big to-do going on here, and BC Wild Sheep is kind of leading the charge from what I can see. They got a petition that you can sign online, which, you know, not a bad thing to do, that says, you know, we support hunting. But the issue of trophy is a good one to talk about, so we're going to start talking about it here on the Week in Review. The fear of losing more hunting privileges in BC that we're talking about It comes from a very real precedent set by the current administrations and their views on predator hunting and trapping. A moratorium on grizzly bear hunting went into effect in December of 2017. And to be clear here, we're like in opinion land, so keep that in mind. If we don't like the word trophy being used against us, and by us I mean hunters, then we as hunters should do a heck of a lot better job not using it not letting others define hunting as a whole with the word trophy. Or we had better redefine the word trophy and do it fast. Take the word back, so to speak. Trophy officially is defined by measurements that, according to a book or organization, say that a skull or horn or antler is of exceptional size, rare in comparison to others. But where I see trophy being used is very rarely in association with a club or a book or even a frickin' tape measure. It's often used within a family or even frame of mind. A person's first animal is often their trophy. A child's first deer, no matter its sex or headgear, or sometimes even their first outing alone, is a trophy type of experience. This is very common in almost every single household of hunters I have ever encountered. So why do we allow trophy to be defined by an antiquated notion reflected currently by a very tiny fraction of the modern hunting and fishing community? Let's chat about it. Write in to ASKCAL at themeateater.com and we'll see where we end up. 
for the record, I love grizzly bears. Love being around them. Love watching them. One of these days, I'll have a grizzly bear tag in my pocket, and I want to eat one. Moving on to the invasive reptile desk. I read these headlines in a row, and I want to do the same for you. Python found lurking in barbecue with belly full of chicken eggs. Falling iguanas weather may not wipe out invasive lizards, but can make pythons easy pickings. Large boa constrictor found hopelessly stuck in car's dashboard in North Carolina. Just in case you thought it was a slow week in the reptile world. Moving on to the ornithology desk. A rare half-male, half-female cardinal was photographed by a retired ornithologist in Pennsylvania. The bird has a functioning single testy and a functioning single ovary. This is referred to as bilateral gynandromorphism, which has been documented in birds, insects, and crustaceans. In the case of birds, an egg and its associated polar body are fertilized by a separate sperm. The resulting individual is a male-female chimera. Now, if you go looking up chimera, it is important to look up genetic chimera. Otherwise, you're going to find a Greek female fire-breathing monster with a lion's head, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. A genetic chimera is a single organism composed of more than one genotype. You see the difference between the two? Fire-breathing, lion-headed female. You, you get it. So, we're learning a lot today. And it's even fun to say chimera. And when I say we are learning, I mean it. I once made fun of a kid during a duck shoot, we were all kids to be clear, who said he shot a male-female hybrid. Which is, as I know right now, possible. And to me, to be fair, it looked like a model duck or a mallard duck that has not reached full plumage. So, you know, shame on me. If you want to get a look at something starkly contrasting that'll really make you scratch your head, look up Half Blue Lobster, a gynandromorph example of that species. It looks as if someone cut the lobster in half, painted one side electric blue, then perfectly sealed it back together. It's amazing. Moving on, the doctor is in. Robbie Doctor sets a new Montana State brown trout record by shattering the previous record set in 1966 by a whopping three and a half pounds and breaking only one little girl's heart in the process. I'm just kidding. As reported by Sam Lundgren at TheMeatEater.com, Robbie Doctor fishes with his daughter every Wednesday night. It was with her that he landed the 37-inch, 32-pound, 6-ounce Monster Brown on 4-pound test. Way to go, team. Moving on to the dog lover's desk. And I am speaking to all of you who write in, asking me to put my preference for dogs aside when I constantly relay the facts about outdoor cats and their effects on wildlife. Kitchener's Biotactic Fisheries Research and Monitoring has released a study linking dog poop to poor fish health in urban environments. Dog waste runoff, due to the high concentrations of nitrogens, phosphorus contained within, have in this study proven to impact fish survival, weight, and behavior. Canada's dog waste, which is where this study took place, is estimated to over 100 million tons per year. 
This is directly from the Kitchener study. We exposed creek chub, which is a widespread tolerant stream minnow, to various realistic concentrations of dog waste as simulated urban park runoff, testing both fresh and dried dog feces in both stagnant and aerated water to investigate the impact on fish survival and behavior. Which, you know, sounds like a stinky job. Synopsis. Where dog poop was present, chub mortality increased, especially in slow-moving non-aerated water. So, not picking up your pooch poo is bad. Bad. So pick it up. Now, if we're being honest, this is a human problem. Bad people, not bad dogs. As a quick recap, we hit 19 species, give or take, on the podcast today. Where, I ask you, can you get that kind of bang for your buck? You're welcome. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tune in to the Meat Eater YouTube channel every Tuesday for a new episode of this podcast, Cal's Week in Review, in video form in the field. And most importantly, let me know what's happening in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and burnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY.